0: Uh, good morning, everyone. Happy almost Thanksgiving. I hope your uh, turkeys are busy defrosting and you're all ready for whatever family fun and craziness lies ahead for you this week. Uh, before we get started this morning, would you uh, pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for the gift of your word, the word that brings life to us. Lord, we are so thankful Uh, that we have the freedom to come and to study and to hear you speak to us today. I pray that you would open our hearts. Lord, open our minds. Lord, remove all distractions that would keep us from hearing the word that you have for us today. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I can't think of a more fitting text for this time of year than our uh, passage today in Ephesians 1. This is an extended song of praise and thanksgiving to God for the abundant blessings that He has poured out on His people. And especially as I reflect on all the realities of life for most people who were living in abscess at the time of uh, when Paul was writing this uh, letter. And I could see then why he would want to focus uh, their attention in this direction because for all the, the nice paintings and pretty pictures I showed you of Ephesus a few weeks ago, life for the average person living in the city of Ephesus would have been quite difficult. Books, movies, TV shows, they kind of portray the Roman Empire as being somewhere very clean and neat and tidy and organized and people walking around in these clean white togas and They all have perfect hair, like the statues that you see in museums. But it's hard for me to believe that this really reflects the reality of life in Ephesus. So yes, absolutely incredible, impressive architectural and engineering feats. But think about it, only a tiny number of people had the wealth to live in those fancy villas and live lives. like they do in the movies and the TV shows. For the rest, life was hard work and challenges abounded. There was essentially little to no medical care, right? A simple infection could kill you. Surgeries were largely out of the question. Dental care was crude. Then factoring in the difficulties of being a new Christian, remember at this point in the early church, the vast majority of Christians in Ephesus would have been brand new believers. Certainly, there were a few like we know Timothy uh, had this comes, comes from this legacy of faith, but even that would have been in a compressed period of time. But in cities like Ephesus, which had only just received the gospel from Paul, almost everyone would be learning and growing from scratch. At the same time, to some extent, it was still the blind leading the blind. And being a Christian put you out on the outside of most social circles and work clubs or sort of unions, if you will. Uh, Refusal to participate in emperor worship or idolatry would have caused isolation, public shame and potential loss of income. If you had a Jewish background, you would no longer be welcome most likely in the synagogue. If you had a Gentile background, you would have been rejected from the pagan temples, which, if you remember, was a really big deal in Ephesus. Remember I talked about the powerful influence of the cult of Artemis and that enormous temple. She ruled the city of Ephesus. So being a Christian, while technically not treasonous, would nevertheless raise deep suspicions In other words, the Ephesians battled illnesses, diseases, social pressure, family pressure, financial hardship, and spiritual warfare. I don't know about you, but that feels awfully familiar, very close to home. And they did all of this, though, as brand new baby Christians, right, with little or no cultural or political power. That's the context into which Paul pronounces this incredible opening song of praise And thanksgiving to God. A praise song that in the original Greek, it tumbles forward, uh, cascading for like 200 words. One giant, long sentence in Greek. A praise song offering thanksgiving to God for his abundant, overwhelming, all-encompassing blessings and provisions. And most significantly... You know, at this time of the year, we're thinking about it, tend to think about our material blessings. Lord, thank you for this house, for this job, for these people, for my health. But most significantly, the, the blessings that Paul gives thanks to God for here are the things that can never be taken from you, ever poverty, sickness, death. They cannot touch election, adoption, redemption. No government can ever touch your status as part of the elect. No narcissist can ever seize your status as a son or daughter of God. No illness can ever erode the redemption and forgiveness of sins that you have in Christ. These blessings all belong to the Ephesians forever. Promised by God, paid for with the blood of Christ. And they belong to you and to me also. And so this morning, I want you to rejoice In your redemption, I want you to see the incredible grace that God has poured out on you. Grace that can never be touched by the pain and suffering and struggle of this world. And we're going to see this grace and this glorious redemption by examining three profound blessings that we have now in Christ. So the first great blessing that we have, according to our text is redemption. We're starting in verse seven this week, Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. Now I know there are a lot of big theological terms we've been throwing around over the last few weeks. We we had adoption election and we had predestination and, and we had adoption and now we got redemption. And sometimes all these terms can sort of blur together in our minds. So just pause for a moment and let me give a quick recap. When we talk about election. We're talking about verse 4. God says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, you've been chosen, selected, not because you were better, bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, but because God, in his sovereign purposes before the dawn of time, chose you freely for a purpose, as Pastor Michael reminded us last week, so that we would be holy and blameless Before him to reflect God's glory to the world. But then we also talked about adoption. Which comes in verse 5 where Paul says he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So predestined just means that God predetermined that we would be chosen for adoption as sons and daughters of God. To be brought into this new family. And then as Pastor Michael emphasized last week this comes with This incredible rich inheritance that is now ours as children of God. Pastor Michael gave all those blessings that we can now enjoy as a result of of our status as adopted children. But now look at the next verse, verse 7. Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now this concept of redemption builds on the ideas of election and adoption to bring out another facet of our salvation, the freedom that we can now experience in Jesus Christ. So, you've been chosen, you've been adopted, and now we read this morning, you've been set free. In some ways, redemption is reminiscent to me of the game uh, Capture the Flag. Kids, you're, well everyone's probably familiar with this, right? If you get caught in enemy territory, where do you go? You go to jail, and you're stuck. You can't do anything. You're just waiting there, watching the game go on all around you. You can see the people moving, and you can't do anything until someone else on your team makes a, a daring race over to the prison and frees you, and then you can walk back to your team. What a great feeling that is, right? Release. I've been set free. And redemption is that kind of release, except originally, of course, it wasn't a game. It referred to the release of actual prisoners in jail or perhaps slaves who were released from bondage. Or perhaps if someone was kidnapped and a ransom was paid to set them free. Each one of these situations involves a direct, deliberate intervention of another person. Because prisoners can't free themselves Right? They need someone to rescue them. I I always, I don't know why, but the, the image that comes to mind is someone who's sort of in a straitjacket. Like their hands are bound behind them. You can't wriggle yourself free. You need somebody to intervene specifically and directly to free you. This divine rescue is a powerful and pervasive image running all through the Bible. And the Exodus is perhaps the most dramatic example of redemption in the Old Testament, because we see God doing just this thing, taking direct and specific action to intervene in the lives of his people, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, forcibly removing them from Pharaoh's grasp, sending the plagues, parting the seas, leading the way. And I want you to notice, there's this deep, just incredible sense of ownership here. Right? God says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Not let the people go. Let my people go. In other words, the Israelites belong to God. They are His. Not Pharaoh's. They are God's chosen people. And as such, God will work to rescue them from slavery. Their redemption was rooted in their election and their adoption. God elected them. He chose them. He adopted them. He made them his own. And now he will redeem them. God says, you are mine. You belong to me and nobody else has a right to touch you. Now this freedom, it's not absolute freedom. It was never meant to reflect some kind of autonomous, uh, uh, libertarian freedom where where his people could then go off and do whatever they wanted to. God freed the people from slavery so that they could then live out their true identity as children of God, redeemed out of bondage to Pharaoh in order that they might then serve God in holiness. And this remarkable act of redemption, it's not free, of course, There's a great price that has to be paid. As Paul says here in verse 7, this redemption comes through his blood. The blood here referring to the blood of Jesus Christ. It was not just that Jesus had to die, but his blood had to be shed for us as well. Now, why all this blood? Non-Christians all the time are asking, like, what is the deal with all this blood? And in the Old Testament, God makes it clear that blood represents life. And therefore, sacrifices for sin and atonement required an animal sacrifice involving blood. That's what we heard from uh, Hebrews 9 just uh, a moment ago. After listing all the ways that that blood was used in the Old Testament, the author summarizes by saying, indeed... um, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. When God sent the final plague on Egypt, the people were to smear blood right on the doorposts of their homes. And when God saw the blood, he would pass over that house and death would not enter. And in this manner, the people were finally set free from slavery. The lamb was killed. The blood was shed in their place. The lamb died, so they would not have to. Now several years after leaving Ephesus, Paul would make a very similar point in his farewell message to the the leaders, the elders of Ephesus. He tells them in Acts 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus didn't buy a church building with his blood. He bought the people of God with his blood. His people brought back into his family, restored to their rightful home. That's the gift and blessing we have in and through the work of Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Which means if you've put your trust in Jesus, then that deliverance, that that redemption, that relocation from one kingdom to another, that's happened already in your life. That transfer of ownership, it's permanent. Nobody can take that away from you. No matter what chaotic circumstances are, are swirling around you right now. And although we only experience some tiny amount of the blessings of the redemption here and now. One day we will experience it fully and completely and for all of eternity. Now meanwhile, Satan will try to convince you that you are still in chains. That you are still bound in chains. Still stuck In that prison. That your status is uncertain. That you don't deserve to be set free. That you cannot experience new life in Christ. But the text says otherwise. In him we have already, right now, redemption through his blood. The the, the deed of sale has been sealed for all eternity by the blood of Christ. Which means we can walk freely And fully in confident assurance of that great blessing today. Now, as we move to the second blessing, we we leads to the next question. What is the impact of this redemption? Just how exactly does it change our lives? And this leads to the second blessing, which comes again in verse 7. And that's forgiveness. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You know, sin is the biggest challenge that we face in life. Not a challenging homework assignment, not your struggling finances, not a difficult boss, not that one relative who continues to drive you crazy, not even your health, despite whatever aches, pains, illnesses, and diseases you may be struggling with your primary problem in this life is the same as mine, and that's sin. Why? Because sin is what separates us from God. It's the deadly disease that has infected every single part of creation, every cell, every atom. It's a dirt that cannot be washed away, a presence that cannot be escaped. It's like... uh, If you've ever stayed in in a hotel and and you open the door and you realize, oh, wow, somebody was smoking in here before we got it here, right? You can just smell it. There's that nasty, acrid smell, and it clings to everything. It's in the bed. It's in the sheets. It's in the chairs. It's in the curtains. It's in the bathroom. It's in the carpet. It seems to cling even to the walls, You can't see it, but there is no mistaking it. You can't vacuum it out. The cleaners, right, they try and mask it with air fresheners, and you can still smell it. Like you try and run the little air conditioner to try and, and all it does is just blow that nasty smell around the room. And that's kind of like sin. It permeates everything, and there is no escaping it. It gets into every nook and cranny of our lives. No amount of cleaning or scrubbing will ever get it out. And the challenge for us is that God and sin, they do not mix. They are oil and water. In the magnificence of God's holiness, there can be no room for sin. Not one single particle, which means we are hopelessly, hopelessly, totally, and completely separated from God as a result. Even on our best days, we still, outside of Christ, carry around with us the odor of that sin. It lingers on us the same way onions linger on us long after we're done cutting them. But the good news is that your redemption, the freedom that you have in Christ is It's not just a change in location, right, from one place to the other. It's not just even a change of identity. It's a change in status as well. Through the work Jesus Christ did on the cross, all your debts have been paid in full. All your sins have been atoned for. God's wrath has been permanently removed. The sin that stubbornly clung to you for years has been washed away. And you now stand before God, holy, cleansed, new, a new creation, right? Paul says the old is gone, the new has come already. What a weight has been lifted from us now as a result. Jesus Christ has dealt not only with the problem of your sin nature, that original sin that you were born with, but he continues to work forgiveness for all the ways that you continue now to fail and fall short Of God's holy standard. Paul says, in him we have already this redemption, this forgiveness of our sins. It's not only secure, it is ongoing. Every moment of every single day, every every lustful thought, every moment of anger, every covetous desire, every jealous outburst, every time... We stretch the truth or try to cover up our failures and mistakes from the tiniest thoughts to the the thoughts of thoughts that we have. Right? To the most egregious moral failures. All of it. Jesus Christ has paid for all of it. And we have access now to that forgiveness. Total and complete forgiveness. All that guilt and shame is just... Gone. It is washed away. It is erased. Wiped clean because there is no condemnation now in Jesus Christ. That instinct you have to hide from God and others, it's not necessary. In Him, you have forgiveness of all your trespasses, every single sin. If you've repented of your sin, you can walk with your head held high, not rejoicing in your own righteousness but recognizing God's gracious provision in the very middle of your unrighteousness. You know, we think of Thanksgiving as being this time of, of abundance and blessing because of all the food, right? All this enormous table piled high, a 25-pound turkey, a huge vat of mashed potatoes. But this redemption, this forgiveness of sin it knocks it out of the park it's according to the riches of god's grace which he lavished upon us you know when you go to an ice cream store and you see all the flavors and they you can get taste right and they give you this tiny it's like this tiny little spoon and they take this little tiny scoop of ice cream and give it to you for taste and I think in our guilt and in our shame, we misunderstand God's grace is operating in that same way. Like, we sort of have to sidle up to him half-heartedly and, and be like, God, look, I know you probably don't want to do this for me. It's a lot to ask. But if I could just get just this little part of my sin, if you could just just, just forgive this part and I'll take care of the rest. Don't worry, I'll, I'll clean it all up. But, but just cover this little bit for me, please. But look at the text. God doesn't work in teaspoons. He piles your, high, your plate high with more than you can even ask for or ever imagine. Not teaspoon, it's like this, like a, a mountain of ice cream. Right? He pours out His grace in abundance, abundance. Right? He lavishes it on us over and over and over again. And he delights to do this now in Christ. You know, I think about um, a water park. Have you seen, seen, been to a water park and you've seen these giant buckets and they slowly fill up with like thousands of gallons of water. And then when they reach tipping point, the whole thing comes crashing down. And all the kids are standing underneath and you go, like just completely drenched with water. Uh, this is the perfect picture for me of the riches of God's grace being lavished on us, cleansing, refreshing, renewing, overwhelming, bringing joy and laughter and the delight. And it's never-ending stream of blessing. He pours it out and it just refills and it goes again. Pours it out, refills and goes again. Pours it out, refills and goes again. Over and over. A well that will never, ever, ever run dry. But here's the thing. If you've been to water parks, then you know there are two groups of people in this exact situation. Right? There are those who sit off in the chairs to one side watching the fun. And then there are those who are actually standing there under the water like, let's get this on! And we see something similar in our walk with Christ. right? The lavish, over-the-top, overabundant, unceasing grace of God. It's on offer to everyone, right? The price has been paid. Admission has been granted. And yet, over time, how often... Do so we grow weary and maybe even bored with it all? I mean, like, I guess it's nice for the excitable new believers, right? But I'm just kind of fine walking through life under my own strengths. Sure, I don't feel so great spiritually all the time, but, you know, my salvation's secure. I, I know I'm in the kingdom. I mean, occasionally I feel some spray coming off the water, that feels nice. I get little spritzes of grace, but I've learned to live with that lingering, smoky aroma of sin that pervades my life. And so I just kind of sit, and I watch, and I wait. How many of us do that? It's ridiculous. God's offering this, this overwhelming, abundant blessing of grace to bring joy and life and healing and cleansing and refreshment. And we sit off to the side. Now Paul doesn't tell anyone to do anything in this opening song of praise. He just lets his own personal awe for God just come spilling out. It's like he can't contain himself when he reflects on the amazing blessings that he has in Christ. But how can we read this and not be led to question the degree of our own thankfulness, the measure of our own awe of what God has done, the extent of our own experience of such grace-filled forgiveness? Where do you find yourself most often? Standing under that glorious, life-giving waterfall of forgiveness? Or sitting off to the side, watching others Enjoy the cleansing, renewing power of God's grace. Don't wait. Don't keep putting it off. Turn to God in confession and repentance for all of it. Everything, every little bit of it this whole, that you're holding on to still. Cry out to him for help. And experience the freedom that comes from knowing that all your sins and trespasses have been washed away. <laughs> Now, these blessings are amazing, but as if that's not enough, there is more here that Paul speaks of in verses 8 through 10. These young believers in Ephesus, right? They're working so hard to build and establish small churches in one of the largest cities in the uh, uh, Roman Empire. And they needed to be reminded of one more truth concerning their election their adoption, and their redemption. And that was the ultimate purpose of God's grand plan, namely the unification of all things in and through Jesus Christ. So if you look, because it's one long sentence, we have to read starting in verse 7 for it to make sense. But he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It's a long sentence. It's a lot to digest. So as we consider this final blessing, I want to, to read for you the, the words of a Scottish pastor who was writing in the eighteen 18- hundreds, 1871. He was actually writing about a passage in the Gospel of John, but what he had to say captures the essence of Paul's words here to the Ephesians so well that I wanted to read this whole thing. So this pastor, George Smeaton, he says, The world is in consequence of the vicarious work of Christ. It's no more Satan's. And Christ's people are now to be far from the impression that they are only captives in an enemy's territory and unable, warrantably, to occupy a place in the world, either as citizens or magistrates. On the contrary, he says, every foot of ground in this world belongs to Christ. And his followers can be loyal to him in every position. And in every country and corner where they may be placed, they have to act their part for the Lord. The world, the entire world, is judicially awarded to Christ as its owner and Lord. In other words, he says, every foot of ground in the world belongs to Christ. Every rock and tree and lake and flower, every person that has ever existed or will every exist every star in the sky every galaxy is all his right and god's secret plan paul says now revealed to us in christ has always been to bring together all the broken pieces from all of creation back together to restore what was lost to renew creation and to do so in and through his son jesus christ so that's this third blessing that Paul wants to remind his readers of in our passage, that in pouring out his abundant blessings on us, God has given us wisdom and insight and understanding to perceive and to understand the mystery of God's will. But, but what is this word mystery, right? We, we, what is he talking about here? We usually think of it as something being shadowy and, and difficult to understand, like a like a murder mystery show on TV and we're trying to figure out like who did it or, or maybe some cryptic puzzle or, or, or strange lights in the night sky and it's mysterious and we don't know what it is. And there is, there is a little bit of that sen- same sense of strangeness here in, in, in this word. You know, Ephesus had these uh, what they called mystery cults which were cults or secret clubs and they... They had special initiation rites that only the members knew about. And and this hidden secret knowledge that they kept just for themselves. But the word came to take on a a much different meaning in the New Testament. And Paul uses it often to describe a secret that although once hidden, has now been revealed. Not just to a select few, but to everyone. Everywhere. Everywhere. A secret that was once hidden, but now revealed, made clear. Once upon a time, we didn't know. We couldn't see. But now, according to God's purposes, he has revealed this plan to everyone. It didn't take Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot to sort of solve this mystery. God's like, look, I'm just going to give you the answer right here. I'm going to unveil this secret. And let everyone see. Everywhere. No more secrets. No more hiding. Publicly, openly proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Right? Publicly, openly openly proclaiming his coming death and resurrection. Jesus publicly and openly dying on a cross and being raised from the dead. All out in the open for anyone and everyone to see. The secret... Revealed. That's what Paul is talking about at the end of verse 9 when he says, "...which he set forth in Christ." God publicly displayed. He set forth this secret plan in his living, breathing son, Jesus Christ. And what was the purpose, though, of this plan? From the very beginning, the plan has always been, as Paul says at the end of verse 10... To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Now we know the earthly realm. But what does Paul mean by the things in heaven? In this case, Paul's not talking about the place where Christians go when they die. Paul uses the word, words heaven or the heavenly places to refer to the, the spiritual realm that exists. Just outside of our view, right? It's almost uh, its like a parallel universe, if you will, that, that exists with ours—a spiritual realm, alive with both angels and demons. These are the powers and principalities that we do spiritual warfare with. That we're going to read about in Ephesians six. But this is also the realm of of God's angelic forces that do God's will, that serve as his messengers, all operating in this realm called the heavens, meaning in the spiritual realm. And although much that happens in this realm is beyond our understanding, Paul is clear. God's plan is for everything, everywhere, in all these realms, spiritual and physical, visible and invisible, all of it to be brought together in and through Christ at the fullness of time, at the end of the ages. When, as he says in Philippians 2, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, in that moment, all evil will be punished. All good will prevail. Justice will be both swift and absolutely perfect. No force will be able to stand in his way. All of creation is groaning until that day. We, We experience little hints and tastes of the unifying work of Christ today, but we still await its final arrival. I know I'm... Sort of mixing my holidays here a little bit, but we're so close. I can't help but be reminded of Advent, right? We experience hints and tastes of Christmas all through the month of December, all through this Advent season, waiting, preparing, waiting, leading up to December 25th, when we finally get to celebrate an open presence and celebrate and worship our King. And in a similar way, we experience the presence of Christ daily, here and now, as he works to grow and expand his kingdom, right? We can rest now in our election. We can take comfort from our adoption. We can live freely and boldly in light of our redemption. These are all real gifts that we experience. We, we feel that work of Christ in our lives today. But of course, the full, glorious, beautiful vision of God's perfect reign over the new heavens and the new earth awaits Christ's return. And in the meantime, there is work for us to do. Right? If God's plan is to unite all things together, spiritual and physical, and all of creation in Christ, then we should resist the temptation to see any kind of sharp division between What's happening out there in the world and what we do in here in the church. Our faith should infuse every part of our lives. No partitions, no divisions, no separation. As we wrap this up here, Paul wants us to see that all is Christ's. All of it. We don't see that yet today. But one day Christ's reign will be an unavoidable, inescapable reality and we will rejoice in his presence as we experience together the reunification of all things on heaven and on earth under the lordship of our great God and King. What a day of rejoicing and celebration that will be. Would you pray with me? All praise be to you, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Lord, we marvel this morning at the love you displayed in predestining us for adoption to yourself through Jesus Christ. And we thank and praise you for the redemption that we now have through the blood of Christ the forgiveness of all our trespasses, washed away, cleansed, made new. Truly, Lord, you have lavished, abundant, overwhelming blessings upon us. And so, Lord, we pray this morning for patient, humble hearts as we eagerly await for you to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, In your name and for your glory. Amen.